One of Christianity's central claims is that God is to be trusted. God is to be trusted above all else. Above everyone and everything. And what is it about God that encourages and and invites us to trust Him above all else and above everything? It is quite simply that He is God. There is no one like Him. And, and what do we need to keep in view as we endeavor to trust God for His grace each day? Well, here is what the 19th century Virginia Baptist minister, J.L. Dagg, said we need to keep in view as we place our trust and confidence in God. Dagg wrote, A view of God's eternity and unchangeableness is necessary to the due exercise of confidence in Him. It is folly to trust in uncertain riches and in things which perish in the using of them. But we wisely put our trust in the living God. God is eternal and unchangeable. He is living and active. He is a rock, as Dag would later say. Everything and everyone else is temporary. And passing away. This is the truth that emerges in our passage this morning, the passage that we're looking at in Isaiah chapters 36 through 39. And it's it's my prayer that as we are exposed to God's word this morning, that He would remind us of His faithfulness, of His trustworthiness, of His uniqueness, and that our faith in Him might be strengthened. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find uh, that passage beginning on page 596. 596. And while you're uh, turning there, just allow me to kind of set the context for our study together this morning. As I've mentioned all throughout this series, the prophet Isaiah is is really just trying to communicate one simple message to his audience. And, And that message is this. Salvation is found in God and in God alone. You'll notice uh, in your handout, I provided a handout there in the bulletin. Uh, hopefully that'll help you. But uh, you'll notice there in your handout that Isaiah tends to bounce back and forth between a, a historical crisis and, and future events. And when Isaiah addresses kind of a historical circumstance, uh, his message is clear. You have no need to fear. God is your salvation. Trust in Him. And when Isaiah speaks Uh, With respect to a mostly future vantage point, his his message is also clear as he communicates that God holds the end in his hands. He has promised good and glory for his people, so trust him. Whether Isaiah is speaking about the present or the future, his message is the same. Trust in God. He is our (laughs) salvation. And this morning, as we turn to consider Isaiah chapters 36 through 39, we return to Isaiah addressing a set of historical circumstances. But as we'll see, Isaiah still has an eye on the future. The crisis of 734 with Syria, the Syrian-Israelite coalition, has passed. But the Assyrian crisis has not. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army crushed, captured, and carried off to exile Judah's immediate neighbor to the north. Israel. For a time, Israel lived in in peace with Assyria. While the nation uh, ran around expanding its empire, Assyria ran around kind of expanding its empire by by conquering 
neighboring nations in the known world, uh, that peace between uh, Assyria and Judah, as we discover in these chapters, has come to an end. The reason that they had lived in peace is because Judah had really kind of submitted itself to Assyria and Assyria's king. But in 703, Hezekiah and Judah asserted their independence. Um, They stopped paying tribute to the king of Assyria. And and this did not sit well uh, with the king. Uh, A source of revenue dried up. And it perturbed him, shall we say. Uh, And as a result, the Assyrian army invaded Judah. And the question that Isaiah has been raising the whole book is raised once more. Who do you trust? Who do you trust with this enemy? Is, is God your salvation? This question is raised from a national vantage point, and it's raised from an individual vantage point in these chapters. Not only is the nation faced with the question, but so is their king, Hezekiah. With his own personal illness, he is faced with this question. So we're going to study these chapters under three headings. Trusting God when you're surrounded, trusting God when you're sick, and trusting God when you are safe. And I I hope that those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. I hope that that you'll be helped uh, in following along with those three headings. Uh, Let's begin with our our first point, trusting God when you're surrounded. Uh, And as we do, let's begin by reading from Isaiah chapter 36. Let me read Isaiah chapter 36, verses 1 to 5. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Uh, These verses really are the opening salvo of two chapters of conversation, confrontation, and conflict. But they contain the essence of the problem and the question facing Hezekiah and the people of Judah. That question is right there at the end of verse 4. On what... Do you rest this trust of yours? It it reappears in a slightly different form in verse 5, you'll see there. In whom do you now trust? It's an interesting question. Uh, It's made all the more interesting, given by the fact that it is being asked in a place that we have seen before in the book of Isaiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 7, another king of Judah, King Ahaz, who was Hezekiah's father, was essentially confronted with the same question in the same place, by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. You can find that in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. In the same place some 30 years before, King Ahaz was called to trust in the Lord, but he did not. Now his son, King Hezekiah, is being called to trust in the Lord. Will he? Will the people of Judah? That is the question. Who do you trust when you're surrounded? Judah's land was 
has apparently already been devastated by the Assyrian army. Verse 1 tells us, you'll notice that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Bearing down upon Judah's capital city, Jerusalem, the king of Assyria, he sends his emissary, the, the Rabshakeh he's called, to confront King Hezekiah. The, the Rabshakeh is essentially, he's the spokesman for the king of Assyria. Uh, throughout much of these chapters, later in chapter 37, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he's going to send kind of another round of messengers to confront and threaten Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. So these, these threats come in waves. Through his men, through the Rabshakeh and the other messengers, Sennacherib puts forward really two arguments for why Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem should abandon all hope. Um, Sennacherib's first argument is that you can't trust the other nations. You see that there in verse 6 of chapter 36. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. This uh, same argument, you can't trust the nations, it comes out in other places too, uh, by implication when Sennacherib's men list the nations whom they have defeated, which leads really to the second argument that Sennacherib and his men make. Perhaps the, uh, the stronger argument or the, the more powerful argument from his vantage point. If the first argument is you cannot trust in other nations to defend you, then the second argument is you can't trust your God. That's what Sennacherib suggests. At first, the argument kind of begins indirectly. Take a look at chapter 36, uh, verses 13 through 16. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of king of Assyria. See, so the Rabshakeh, he, he openly tells the people of Judah, speaking in their language, so he makes sure they know and they get what he's saying, says you should really abandon your faith in God. He, he tempts them and invites them to come and trust in him and in his king. As you notice how he spoke of his king, he calls him the, he's the great king. He's the king of Assyria. He's the greatest king, really. But who, who really is the great king? Isaiah has presented over and over again in his book that the Lord is the great king. The king of Assyria is now pitting himself against the Lord. This confrontation is not merely between the king of Assyria and the king of Judah, Hezekiah. No, this is really a conflict between the king of Assyria and the king of heaven. And verses 18 through 19, you'll see there are a list of all the so-called gods that the king of Assyria has triumphed over. And, and through that list, he is asserting that he's more powerful than all of them. And then look at what he says in verse 20. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? You see what he's saying? The Rabshakeh is saying, you know, all of those people, they trusted in their gods, and they lost. If you trust in your God, you'll lose too. He's just like all the other gods. And you'll be just like all those other people. That is a movement from an indirect assault on the trustworthiness of God 
to a direct assault. And in chapter 37, the direct assault continues. So you turn over to chapter 37. Take a look there at verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 37. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Did you see the shift in the argument there? Previously it was, you know, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. And now the argument is don't let God deceive you. Here, Sennacherib brings his final assault on God's character. How will and how do the people of Judah respond to these threats? I think in faith-filled trust in God. Their, their responses come in, in, in two forms, really. Silence and prayer. Uh, they, they do not speak to their adversaries, but they do speak to their God. After the Rabshakeh deliberately speaks in the language of the people of Judah in Isaiah chapter 36, verse 13, we find their silent response there in Isaiah chapter 36, verse 21. If you take a look there at verse 21. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Neither the people nor Hezekiah's men answer him. And let me just say here, sometimes I think that the best way to handle the bluster of the world is to say nothing. Sometimes silence is the right answer. Uh, Christian, do not be afraid to hold your tongue and let God vindicate his name. You know, that's not usually our problem. This is not usually my problem. Um, but sometimes, depending upon the nature of the conversation, it's simply best to remain silent. Let's remember our Savior. Let's remember Jesus, who wisely chose not to open his mouth when he was reviled and threatened. And notice here that their silence is an act of obedience. They submit to the king and keep their mouths <coughs> closed. Sometimes I think that we would be wise to ask a fellow believer, you know, should I, should I respond to what this person is saying? If they tell us, you know, don't, don't respond to that. I wouldn't respond to that. I don't think it will really be fruitful. Then we ought to seriously consider obeying them and remaining silent. The other response that we see in these chapters is this. It's prayer. Uh, the men who bring the news to Hezekiah, they're distraught, they're distressed by what they have heard. And in verse 22 we're told, uh, of chapter 36, we're told that they, they tear their clothes. Uh, when the news reaches Hezekiah in the first verse of chapter 37, uh, we're told that he too tears his clothes. And in verse 4 of chapter 37, Isaiah 37 verse 4, King Hezekiah, he asked the prophet of the Lord, he asks Isaiah to pray for the small remnant remaining in Jerusalem. It's interesting how he asks him to pray too. Effectively, he, he asks, Lord, hear the way they're mocking you. Hear them mock you, Lord, and rebuke them. Hezekiah knows that above all else, God is concerned for his glory. And so Hezekiah appeals to God not to allow his glory to be slighted and tainted by such arrogance. Lord, don't allow them to slight you and your glory. And the Lord responded. We see that in verse 6 of chapter 37 when Isaiah gives them the Lord's answer. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 37 verse 6. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. 
Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. God promises that the Assyrian king promises to bring the Assyrian king's threats to an end and to bring the Assyrian king's life to an end. And this doesn't happen all right away, which means that Hezekiah and the people of Judah have to take God at his word. They have to trust God and they have to do so with the king of Assyria continuing to make threats and send messengers to them. And what we see here is that continuing to trust God means continuing to cry out to Him in prayer. Hezekiah, he offers another prayer in Isaiah chapter 37, verses 15 to 20. Take a look at at his prayer there. Isaiah 37, beginning there in verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Did you notice how Hezekiah describes the kingship of God? Yahweh, the Lord, is the king who is enthroned above all. There is no one above God, not even the mighty king of Assyria. To this all-sovereign creator, Hezekiah asks God to hear the words of Sennacherib, to hear his mocking, hear his indignation, hear his reviling. And notice Hezekiah's honesty in this prayer too. In verse 18 and 19, Hezekiah admits that Sennacherib, that he has destroyed a great many nations. He really is quite powerful. He has proven that the gods of those nations really were not gods at all. That's why they were destroyed. And then in verse 20, we get Hezekiah's request. And there's a logic to his prayer. It's save us. Save us so that all of the nations whom they defeated will know that you alone are the Lord. Stop Assyria so that all of the nations will know that you are God. Their king and their army have denigrated your name and show them just how great your name is. Hezekiah asks for good and he asks for glory. He petitions the Lord to bring his people good, their salvation, for the purpose of bringing glory to his own great name. And this is what it looks like to trust God when you are surrounded. To trust and depend that he is the only one who can save you. I appreciate what one Old Testament scholar, John Oswald, says about this prayer. He writes, Unlike Ahaz, whose fear led him to trust in the nations more than God, Hezekiah has learned the lessons and is willing to stake everything. Uniqueness of the living God. Here is trust on the highest level. Here is trust befitting that of a descendant of David who was not willing for a giant to stand unmolested and defy the armies of the living God. 
Israel must allow itself to be put in a place where the uniqueness and the sole saviorhood of God can be seen. He's the only one who can save you. And it was seen. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 37, verses 21 to 35, we find the Lord's answer to Hezekiah's faith-filled prayer. The Lord acknowledges that he's heard Hezekiah's prayer and that he has heard Sennacherib's words. The Lord promises to dispatch Sennacherib and to defend the city of Jerusalem. And one of the things that I love about this particular section is that the Lord actually addresses Sennacherib. He does so in verses 22 through 29. And then you come to verse 26 where the Lord is kind of addressing Sennacherib. And he says, have you not heard? Have you not heard that I've determined this from long ago? In other words, you think you're all high and mighty. But like Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. I planned all this. That's right. You didn't build your empire. I did. You didn't defeat those nations. I did. I made you the most powerful nation on the earth and brought you to the gates of my most prized possession so that the world may know that I am the living God. That is what the Lord says to Sennacherib. And let's remember that the Lord promised Hezekiah in verse 7 of this chapter that he would send Sennacherib out of the land and that he would die in his own home. Now let's read the concluding verses of chapter 37. Pick up there in verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home. And lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrosh, his god, Adramelech and Cherezes, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after that, they escaped into the land of Ararat, of Ershadon. His son reigned in his place. See, God keeps his promises to remove Sennacherib and his army from their land. And for Sennacherib to fall by the sword in his own land. His promises are fulfilled. God proves himself trustworthy. And he's done it again and again and again in the scriptures. And I'm guessing he may have done it again and again and again in your own life as well. God proves himself trustworthy in fulfilling these promises. And, And consider the manner of their fulfillment. These verses recount what feels like a replay of the Passover in the Exodus where the angel of the Lord went throughout the land of Egypt and struck down all of the firstborn sons of Egypt so that he might save his people from captivity. Then, as if to underscore that Sennacherib's God really is no God at all, Sennacherib is put to death before the altar of his own God by his own sons. There is but one and only one living and true God. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, um, but it seems to me that a lot of enemies of the people of God these days have been kind of shouting at the church, like the Rabshakeh and the the messengers that Sennacherib sent. Uh, The church has been told, you're doomed. 
that you're going to be relegated to the dustbin of history if you don't change. You're, in fact, on the wrong side of history. I think that is an argument from fear. Uh, the truth is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ has promised to build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is not on the wrong side of history. For the God of history is on the side of His church. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, all of this really comes down to whether or not we trust the one true God. And let us not be deceived. An invitation to reject God is none other than an invitation to trust in the kings and princes and ideologies and wealth of this world. That is what the Rabshakeh offered the people of Judah. Making an alliance with the world is making an alliance against God. And we have seen in this passage what happens to those who oppose the living God. When we're surrounded and scared, let's remember our God. And let's call out to Him in prayer. And let's remember that He is the only one who can save. You can trust God when you are surrounded. But what do you do when you are sick? This is the second point that we want to consider together this morning. Trusting God when you are sick. And as we turn, uh, let's, let's read Isaiah chapter 38. Um, let's start with just the first eight verses of the chapter. Isaiah 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord uh, will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun of the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. As you can tell, the prognosis there in verse 1, uh, the outlook is bleak. Hezekiah is instructed to set his house in order. He is going to die. But then Hezekiah prays. And that promise of death is postponed 15 years. It is at this point that Isaiah brings back into our field of vision an important figure and an important event. In verse 8, the important figure that comes back into our field of vision is none other than Hezekiah's father, Ahaz. And the important event that comes back into our field of vision is a sign from the Lord. And all of this is meant to remind us of what happened in Isaiah chapter 7. There, in view of the crisis that he was facing, the Lord called King Ahaz to trust him. And in an effort to prove to Ahaz that God can be trusted, the Lord actually invited Ahaz to ask him for a sign. And Ahaz refused. 
And Ahaz's refusal to ask God for a sign was actually a sign of unbelief and disobedience. Ahaz had already placed his trust in someone else. Hezekiah, though, is not like his father. And he willingly receives the sign. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 20, it tells us that it was Hezekiah's request for the Lord to turn the sun backward. And the Lord did. What are we to make of all of this? Well, we certainly learn that God hears the prayers of His people. We learn that God is willing to postpone judgment. And we learn that God is who He said He is. The God who is sovereign over all of creation. He can do with it as He pleases. God can turn the sun back and He can heal. And all of this is striking, but perhaps what should be standing out to us is the contrast not merely between Ahaz and Hezekiah, but between Hezekiah and Sennacherib. Uh, Sennacherib, at the end of chapter 37, went to his God and he was put to death. What happens when Hezekiah goes to his God? He's given life. Isaiah is reminding us here, he's reminding his readers that in the hands of the Lord belong life and death. Hezekiah does not explicitly ask the Lord to lengthen his life, but he does ask the Lord to remember his life. Oh Lord, remember how I have been faithful, he says. And that word remember is also another important clue in this prayer. When that word is brought out by people in the Old Testament, what they're often asking God to do, the Lord to do, is to remember his covenant promises. So back in Exodus, when, when people were enslaved in Egypt, they said, Remember, O Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember your promises to them. And the Lord answered them. It's my sense that Hezekiah is calling God to remember his covenant promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There the Lord promised David, who was the king, that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. God promised him a Messiah. God was establishing the hope of a messianic king who would one day come and save his people from the worst enemy of all, from sin and death. And as we know from Isaiah chapters 7, 9, and 11, this has been one of the most important concerns in the book. And this will become all the more clear really in the second half of the book, chapters 40 through 66. Hezekiah's main concern is not simply his own life, but the Davidic line. At the time of his illness, he didn't have an heir. He didn't have a son to sit on the throne and continue the Davidic line. Manasseh was to be born three years later, and he was only 12 when he came to the throne in Judah. Another clue to the fact that Hezekiah is concerned about the survival of the line of data and the Messianic line is how the Lord responds to Hezekiah. The Lord replies to Hezekiah by acknowledging that he is the Lord, the God of David, your father. In effect, telling Hezekiah, yes, I will spare your life and sustain my promises to David. A Messiah will come. And in verses 10 through 20, it's as if we're given a page from Hezekiah's diary uh, after the Lord restored his health. There's this poem here we see. It's kind of a backward reflection of Hezekiah upon his experience in coming to the edge of death and really looking over it. It's a sober poem. Hezekiah took no pleasure in the prospect of death. Still, the, the thing continues to amaze me about Hezekiah is that he always seems to look to God's larger purposes. If you take a look there at Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17, I think you can see something of this. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17. Behold, 
It was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all of my sins behind your back. For my welfare. God brought this trial, this bitterness for my good. Hezekiah says, this seems like Hezekiah's version of Romans 8.28. Where Paul says, and we know that God works all things together for good of those who love him. Seems that from Hezekiah's perspective, it was this illness that awakened him to his sin, led him to repentance and therefore uh, to fellowship with God. Uh, this seems to have been the good that God was working in his illness. And this led Hezekiah to praise and thank the Lord. So you can see there in verses 18 to 20. But there in verses 21 and 22, and they, they return to the immediate scene of Hezekiah's kind of healing, and so describe the means that was used to, to signify that healing. These last two verses also remind us that Hezekiah really was different than his father, his father Ahaz. Where Ahaz did not ask for a sign, Hezekiah did, and that was a display of his faith. And what underscores that all the more is Hezekiah's desire for communion with God. He desires, verse 22 says, to go up to the house of the Lord. What should we do? When we are sick. Should we pray to God for recovery? I think so. Uh, I don't think that's a sinful prayer. Uh, let's be honest though. Uh, God does not always promise healing and recovery. When applying a passage like this to our lives. We need to recognize that something unique in redemptive history is taking place here. Hezekiah prays when he is sick. But he also has in mind the larger purposes of God. He's concerned about the promises that God made to David, which tie really into the very fabric and the storyline of the Bible. God is pleased to answer Hezekiah's request for healing because Hezekiah's sustainment is the means through which he will keep alive the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ and therefore the defeat of sin and death and the overturn of sickness and suffering. Is it any wonder that Matthew, when he writes his gospel, includes Hezekiah in the line of the Messiah when he's unfolding Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1? You and I are, are not quite um, connected to the coming of the Messiah in the same way that Hezekiah was. Nevertheless, I, I do think that we should learn from Hezekiah that, that when we are sick, our immediate reaction ought to be to pray for health and healing. We should also learn from Hezekiah that the Lord may have some larger purposes in our lives confronting us with illness. Uh, it, it may be that the Lord calls us to suffer with faith as a, a witness and a testimony to others around us. Uh, it, it may be that the Lord intends us to draw us closer into communion with Him. It may be to give us a greater appreciation of Christ's sufferings on our behalf. Whatever the case may be, Let's pray that we learn to confess with Hezekiah and with the Apostle Paul that the Lord is working all things together for our welfare, for our good, and for His glory. Well, we've considered what it looks like to trust in God when you're surrounded by enemies and when you're sick. But what does it look like to trust God when you're safe? Uh, that's what we now turn to think about in Isaiah chapter 39. So let's turn and consider our third and final point. Trusting God when you are safe. And let's read, um, let's read chapter 39, beginning there, verse 1. 
At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Chapters 38 and 39, the chapter we're looking at now, they, I think, are chronologically prior to what takes place in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. And, and that's because Isaiah is doing something uh, literarily for his, his book. Um, Isaiah is setting up the second half, the focus of the second half of his book in, in these two chapters. He's beginning this transition. Uh, the second half, chapters 40 to 66, uh, we shift from the Assyrian crisis <coughs> to the Babylonian crisis. But one thing remains constant for Isaiah's audience. They must continue to trust and wait upon the Lord to send the promised king from the line of David. And as we can see here from chapter 39, Babylon begins to come into view. Sometime after Hezekiah had recovered and received the promise that God would deliver his city from the Assyrians, Hezekiah, he welcomed an envoy from Babylon. Hezekiah was safe, or so he thought. He had God's healing, and he had God's promise of help. So what does that mean for his faith? Is there, is there any remaining need to trust the Lord? To be on guard against the trust in wealth, in kings, and in the nations of the earth. If you are so lavishly wealthy as Hezekiah and the people of Judah appear to be, is there you know, any remaining need to trust in the Lord? Yes. There is always a need to trust in the Lord, even when you are safe. Uh, perhaps especially when you are safe. Prosperity is just as much of a test for the people of God as is persecution. And in some ways, prosperity is an even more difficult test to pass. Not necessarily physically, uh, but spiritually certainly. 
And here's the reason why. Prosperity can, be pri can, can bring pride. And pride can be difficult to detect. And where do we see Hezekiah's pride in these verses? I think right there in verse 2. What did Hezekiah show them? <coughs> he showed them everything. The, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. He thought that everything was safe. He thought that everything was safe because he thought that he was safe. He had, you know, he had a new lease on life, but he used it poorly. What an, an honor it was to be visited, visited by ambassadors of a foreign king. He was concerned for Hezekiah's welfare, and he apparently wrote him some get well letters and brought him a present. And do we really think that the leaders of foreign nations in that day and age wrote get well letters and sent presents to one another and were not expecting something else in return? No. There is more going on here than I'm glad you're well kind of visit. Uh, this is a, you know, I'm glad you're well. How can we work together kind of visit? Let's form an alliance. And the first word of these uh, verse 3, I, I think, really intrudes upon this gleeful scene like nails on a chalkboard. You have this description of seeing everything, then Isaiah the prophet appears. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah. And Isaiah, he has to take up his prophetic duties of chastising unbelief. And he does so first by questions. And in Hezekiah's answer, we're not given any indication that he understands just what he has done. What, what can be the harm in showing the, the Babylonian army his, his whole armory? What is more, Hezekiah may have been looking upon this Babylonian envoy as a way of forming an alliance to fight off the coming Assyrian army. Hezekiah may have thought to himself, you know, if they see my treasure, uh, th then maybe they'll understand that I can pay tribute to them to help me fend off the Assyrians. And so we return to the problem of trusting in foreign nations that has been so fiercely opposed in the book of Isaiah. With the welcome reception of flattery, we also return to the problem of kings in this book. They think of themselves more highly than they ought. Only this time, the king who thinks of himself more highly than he ought is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. In verses 5 through 7, the Lord informs Hezekiah of the coming judgment. The people of Judah and all that belongs to them will be carried off to exile. Adam and Eve, for their sin, were thrust out of God's garden. They were exiled from God's presence. And Hezekiah and the people of Judah will be exiled for their sin. A failing to trust in God and follow Him. Instead, they were putting their trust in the nations. The nation, too, that they were putting their trust in would turn on them and take all that belonged to them. Those who were supposed to be kings in Judah would be humiliated before the kings of Babylon. Friends, uh, brothers and sisters, I mentioned earlier, prosperity can be a test. It is tempting to trust our wealth and our relationships with others instead of trusting in God. And let us learn this lesson. Wealth can be lost. The people of Judah were going to lose everything. Remember Job. 
He lost everything. Everything. And we have these accounts in the Bible for a reason. They tell us that we can lose everything. And these accounts in the Bible teach us that wealth is not to be trusted. They're not meant to be valued. They're not even meant to be viewed as chiefly belonging to us. And the reality here is that most of us sitting here today may not think of ourselves as extravagantly wealthy. But if you consider how most of us live by the standards of the majority of people in this world, we are extravagantly wealthy. Um, as believers who worship in Arlington County, who live in northern Virginia, uh, let us be aware that our prosperity is a test. And that we ought never believe that we are safe from trusting in wealth instead of our God. He can take everything. And will he be enough if he does? He will. He is worth more than all the wealth in the world. King Hezekiah's response to the news in verse 8, that exile is coming to the people of Judah. They'll lose everything. It's uh, interesting. It's intriguing. He acknowledges that Isaiah's words are none other than the words of the Lord. Therefore, the judgment is good. The judgment is good in the sense that it's, it's just and right. That's what that means there. For Hezekiah and Judah's pride and sin, God's judgment is good and right. But what are we to make of the, the final words of chapter 39? What are we to, to think about Hezekiah's statement, there will be peace and security in my days? Is this a, a selfish, pride-filled statement of contentment with the fact that at least nothing bad is going to happen to him? What about the horror that's coming to his children? Or, or, or is it an acknowledgement that, that the dark days of the exile are ahead? But at least God in His mercy is not bringing those days to pass right now. God in His mercy is giving some hope for some time. What we do know is that this reveals that Hezekiah is not the promised king of Isaiah chapters 7, 9, and 11. He's not the one who's to come from a virgin. He's not the one who's going to reign in justice and righteousness. He's not going to be the one who cares for his people no, unlike Hezekiah, um, the coming king will not escape suffering. Uh, instead, suffering will be the very heartbeat of his mission. Enemies would hurl insults at him and tempt him to abandon God. Remember when Satan did that to the Lord Jesus Christ? He'll tempt him like Sennacherib's men did. And he would go through intense suffering. And pray with fervency. And this future king would come precisely because he is concerned about his children who are in exile. Not simply those who are exiled from the physical land of Canaan, but those who are exiled from the presence of God because of sin. These chapters encourage us to look forward and long for the coming of Jesus Christ. And the good news is, is that he did come. <coughs> He did come to deliver his people from the enemies of sin and death, an enemy far more profound than any emissary of an earthly king. Unlike you and me, Jesus, God's son, who was fully God and fully man, he lived a sinless life. And unlike Hezekiah and all the kings before him, Jesus lived a life of perfect trust in God. Jesus was really the one who walked before God in complete and total faithfulness. 
Jesus was the only one who really possessed a, a pure heart. He was the only one who always did what was good in the sight of the Lord. And he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly over the devastating effects of sin in this world. And he had compassion on sinners like you and me. And it was out of that concern and compassion and love for sinners that he willingly gave up his life on the cross. And there, King Jesus, the one from Hezekiah and David's line, took the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him, who would trust Him. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him, and thus proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And God showed us His uniqueness as the only one who can save. And now Jesus calls all of us to turn from trusting in ourselves, from trusting in our wealth and our good works and the world, to trusting in Him. He is the only one who can save us. And so we must put our hope in Him. And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then what that means for you is that you are called to believe that Jesus lived for you the sinless life that you have not lived. That He died for you the death that your sins deserve. And that He was raised from the grave for you so that you might be accepted as righteous in God's sight and ushered into His presence, no longer exiled from Him. Friend, if you want to know more about what it means for your life to trust and follow Jesus, then please find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important you could think about than what it means to trust in Jesus Christ with your whole heart and life. We should conclude. This morning, uh, from Isaiah chapters 36 to 39, we've considered what it looks like to, to trust in God when you're surrounded by enemies. What it looks like to, to trust in God when you're sick. And what it looks like to trust in God when you're safe. In short, it means trusting in no one and nothing else but Him. What it means is to trust in God, to abandon any hope that you have in yourself, in any earthly person or any earthly wealth. It means staking your life on the truth that God and God alone is eternal and unchangeable and remains faithful to His promises to save. It means living and believing that He and that He alone is your salvation. Let's pray together.